If you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Gospel of John, chapter 4. John, chapter 4, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. If you would pray with me. Father, thank you for this passage that we have before us, this passage in which we have insight into Christ's ministry, in which he reached out to a, a woman who was despised and offered her living water. Father, I pray as we dig into this passage and we seek to understand its content that you would aid us that your spirit would be moving among your people, that you would help us to see Christ and to see the offer that he has laid here before this woman and by extension to all of us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to find our soul's satisfaction in him and him alone. I pray, Father, that you would minister to your people this morning, that they would return to the well of living water. And I pray for those, Lord, who may be here who have never drunk from that well. I ask, Lord, that you would open their eyes and that you give them drink this morning. So, Father, come now. Be glorified in our midst, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's hard to believe that we are off to a new year. Seems like as I get older, every year seems to go by faster and faster. 
<laughs> just wait. I'm sure that's true. And just this past week, my wife and I celebrated my daughter's 10-year-old birthday, which was a lot to process for mom and dad. In some ways, it feels like it was just yesterday that her little hand barely wrapped around my finger, and her whole body could just lay in my forearm. But that wasn't yesterday. That was a decade ago. And tomorrow, she will be grown. As has been said before, in life it very often feels like the days are long, but the years are short. And for that reason, I was especially thankful for Pastor Paul's message last week out of Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we may get a heart of wisdom. It was a timely word for us all to be spurred on and reminded that in our numbered days we are to seek satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone, to be satisfied in that which is eternal and and lasting. As Moses said in that psalm, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may may rejoice and be glad all of our days. That is the true desire of every believer, to be continually satisfied in the Lord. But it is not just that it is a desire for believers. It is actually the need of every living soul. And in many ways, that's what we are going to see in the words of Christ today. Providentially, much of the theme of last week's application will be expounded upon today in this encounter that Jesus has with this woman at the well. Because here's the truth. Every soul outside of Christ lives in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction. A state of knowing that there is more and looking for more. Not really even knowing what that more is. Just knowing that things aren't right and not just out there, but in here. I think if you were to approach just about anybody on the street who does not know Christ, and you were to ask them if they know what it is to be truly satisfied. Is true satisfaction your experience? Is your soul satisfied? I think if they were to be honest with you, the answer would have to be no. And that's just obviously the case when you look out at this very confused and lost world in which we are living. But here we see Christ show a very lost woman where the ultimate source of satisfaction truly lies. And he offers her free access to come. So we're going to trace out this story in three sections, all of which show the hand of God at work very heavily. As we go, we're going to see that there's a divine mission, that there's a divine encounter, and that there's a divine offer. And all of this was set up by God to show forth His grace in Christ to an unworthy woman, and by extension to an unworthy people. My hope for us today is really twofold. One, 
is that if you are here and you have never partaken of the water offered by Christ, that you would see in this text that that offer still stands for you today, freely and openly. And two, that we as believers would be spurred on with the admonitions of last week to spend our lives drinking from the only well that brings lasting satisfaction. But let's see how John sets the scene here and establishes what is clearly a divine mission. Look with me at verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, there are a couple things here that are significant. If you remember where we left off, Jesus has been out in rural Judea with his disciples preaching and making and baptizing more disciples. As John notes, it was actually not him who was baptizing, but it was his disciples who were doing it in his stead. And it was in this context that conflict had arisen with the disciples of John the Baptist. Both their ministries, Jesus and John the Baptist, were going on at the same time in the same region. And as John's disciples were observing this, Jesus' ministry was growing and even superseding that of John's. And it had driven them to jealousy. But John had assured them that this was good, that this was right. Christ is the bridegroom. It is He that must increase. This is God's plan. But Jesus' popularity had grown so much that it not only caught the attention of John's disciples, it had also caught the attention of the Pharisees. Up to this point, you may have noticed that the Pharisees as a group have largely played a background role in the gospel. They haven't been at the forefront of the action just yet. But John has written this in such a way that you are supposed to feel their looming presence all throughout the narrative. The conflict with them is going to explode onto the scene in chapter 5, but it doesn't come out of nowhere. These men of power and control have had a watchful eye on everything going on all the way back to John's ministry right after the prologue in chapter 1. And the intensity of their opposition will eventually culminate at the cross. And all throughout this gospel, Jesus navigates these guys with shrewdness, with carefulness, knowing when it is time to press and when it is time to pull back. Though they are His fiercest opposition, the narrative shows that Christ is in control the entire time. And that's what's going on here. Opposition to his reputation is already building. And to both control the timing of their opposition and in perhaps a rebuke to Judea and Jerusalem, Jesus heads to Galilee where he will really begin the bulk of his early ministry. But as he is going, look what it says in verse 4. It says, And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, at first glance, this may seem like a throwaway statement. 
when you look at the map of the area in the first century, you have in the southern part the region of Judea, which contains key cities like Jerusalem and, and Bethlehem. To no- the north of that was the region of Samaria. And to the north of that was the region of Galilee. And it contained key biblical locations like Nazareth, Cana, Capernaum, and others. Well, to go from Judea to Galilee, if you went in a straight line, you had to go through Samaria. It was the fastest route, and many took it. So because of that, some have relegated this verse to just a geographical reality. But there was actually another route. And many Jews, especially those who were more strict to avoid that which was unclean, opted to go around Samaria by going out east across the Jordan, which was called the Transjordan, and going up north and then coming back to the west to enter into Galilee. And because of the existence of this alternative route, some have wondered if there is more to this statement than just a geographical truism. Now this case, the case for this gets even stronger when you look at the verb that John used. The word here that is translated had in the ESV, he had to, is the word day. I like the way the King James actually translated this. It, It said, he must needs go through Samaria. Now, we don't talk like that, but it gets the point across. This is, a, this is a pretty strong word. This is a word that speaks of absolute necessity, something that must happen. And all through the Gospel of John, John uses this word to speak of a divine necessity, God's will of necessity. Let me give you some examples. Listen for the word must, because it's usually translated as must. John 3, 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. John 3, 14. As Moses was lifted up, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John 3, 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship the spirit in spirit and truth. John 9.4, we must work the works of Him who sent me while it is still day. John 10.16, I have other sheep too that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them in also. Or John 20.9, for as they did not yet understand the Scripture, that He must Rise from the dead. These were all non-negotiable. These are things that must happen according to the will of God for His divine plan to unfold. And it is by no accident that John uses the exact same word here. Yes, Samaria is on the way to Galilee if you're taking the quickest route, but there is a much greater reason for which Christ is passing through this particular area. He had an appointment to get to. What happens in the story is not by happenstance. Christ knew it. God ordained it. He was heading through Samaria for redemptive purposes. 
And I think John placed this little verse, verse 4, in juxtaposition to what he said in the first three verses so that we understand that God's plan is not governed by mere circumstances or by the plans of others. So while Jesus is leaving, on one level was seemingly in response to his rising reputation and to the opposition to that with the Pharisees, we see on another level that this is all part of the plan because he had to go through Samaria to be there at a particular time to meet a particular woman. And look what it says. Look at verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. This is really quite an amazing scene that John has painted for us here. Jesus comes to this town of Samaria after his long trek from Judea. And outside of this town is a piece of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph back on his deathbed in Genesis 48. Jacob had purchased this land in Genesis 33 after he returned from working from his father-in-law Laban for so many years. And so this, this land is land that is rich with God's activity from ages past. Now, there isn't actually anything in Genesis that refers to the well that Jacob dug at this particular location. But it was obviously known from oral tradition that this was, in fact, Jacob's well. And clearly, it wasn't disputed in the first century, and it wasn't even disputed by the Scriptures. In fact, to this day, we actually know where this well is. You can visit it if you were to go to Israel. This well is still there, and it is still producing water, which is really quite remarkable. When Jesus would have arrived at this well, this well would have already been almost 2,000 years old, and it had not run dry to that point. But now, about 2,000 more years later, this well is still producing fresh water, a 4,000-year-old well. Jacob had indeed provided a remarkable source of water. And Jesus arrives at this location. It says it was the sixth hour of the day, which means it was about noon. They, they calculated time based upon sunrise. So the first hour would have been around 6 a.m. So the sixth hour would have been about noon. At the very heat of the day, he came upon this well. And Jesus was wearied, needed rest. And I love that John included this little detail here. Uh, we know that it's actually been one of his primary objectives to show the deity of Christ to those who lived in the first century. Those who lived in the same century as Christ likely did not dispute his humanity. They knew that Jesus was a historical person who lived just a few decades before they did. And John was demonstrating to them that this man was in fact the one who had come from above. The one who was the Word made flesh. He was the Son of God. But here he also shows that he was truly human. John was not at all afraid to show Jesus' weakness in the flesh because it's not enough just to believe his deity. One must also believe his humanity. 
This is why G- John will say in his epistles, both in 1 John and 2 John, anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is of the Antichrist. We must believe both his deity and his humanity. And Jesus, being truly human, was tired. He was hungry. He was thirsty. And he was worn out. He was wearied. And this is purposeful. This was a part of God's plan and a part of the mission. This was a part of the very mission that he was on. As Calvin rightly noted, the mission of the Son is not merely reflected in where he goes or what he says, but even in what he endures. And why is that important? Because part of the mission of Christ during his time on earth was to become our sympathetic high priest. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. If you've ever been tempted to think that God does not understand what you're going through, that perhaps He knows it conceptually because, yes, He's omniscient and He knows all things, but He doesn't know it experientially. He hasn't felt what I have felt. Well, you're wrong. He knows. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to be worn out. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He knows what it is to experience loss. He knows what it is to know loneliness. He knows what it is to know angst. He knows what it is to know sorrow. He was not prophesied to be the man of sorrows for no reason. No, He knows. That's why Hebrews 2 said He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He knows our frame experientially and He is merciful. It was all a part of the mission. And here He is sitting at this well. This is a remarkable scene that has been set. One commentator summarized it beautifully when he said this. He said, The setting of this scene creates powerful image. In the middle of the day, on soil upon which God had already worked, the Christ sat at the well of Jacob. The sun of the day was beating down on the sun, who is himself light in a world that is overtaken by darkness. And much as this piece of land was significant for Jewish people, the impending encounter would make this property significant to the whole world. That's what's going on here. And that's exactly right. But let's look at this. Let's look at what happens in this divine encounter now. Look at verse 7. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, John lets us know that at this moment it was Jesus alone. Now, clearly, Jesus had sent all of his disciples for a reason. No one stayed back to keep him company. He was resting at this well by himself. 
sitting on the actual well when this Samaritan woman comes up to draw water. There is no one else there, just he and her. And likely, culturally, she has absolutely no intention to engage him. It's not even a thought in her mind. She is just coming to get her water and to leave. But Jesus initiates an interaction with her and says something that was absolutely shocking. Give me a drink. And we can see the surprise in her by how she responds. Look at verse 9. Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now there is a lot loaded into this statement. In order to understand this, we have to understand some of the cultural baggage that was behind this. Jews and Samaritans despised each other. And they had for centuries. The question is, why? Who are these Samaritans, and where do they come from? Well, the Samaritans actually traced their roots back to Israel. After the kingdom of Israel had divided into the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom, eventually a king of the northern kingdom arose, King Omri, in 1 Kings chapter 16. He came into power in the northern kingdom, and he established a new capital city for the northern kingdom called Samaria. Samaria became a name that was used not just for the city, but for the entire region. Well, eventually in 722 B.C., when the Assyrians came in, they overtook Samaria, and they exiled and deported most of the Israelites who were living there. However, they did leave behind many of the unimportant lower-class citizens of the northern kingdom of Samaria. And then the king of Assyria replaced those he deported with citizens from the surrounding pagan nations from all over. And these pagans brought in all of their foreign gods, and they began to intermarry with the remaining Israelites who were there. So they combined their bloodlines, but they also combined their religions because they continued to worship Yahweh along with their pagan gods from the surrounding nations. Eventually, the Samaritans did drop off many of the pagan elements and they accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but they rejected the rest of the Hebrew canon. Now, when the Jews had returned to their homeland after their exile... They viewed the Samaritans as turncoat half-breeds who had corrupted the true worship of God. In fact, in the book of Ezra, when the Jews were beginning to rebuild the temple, they were offered help by the Samaritans who viewed themselves as worshiping the same God. But the Jews rejected their offer, which began a lifetime of bitterness between the two groups. In 400 B.C., the Samaritans built their own temple, a rival temple on Mount Gerizim to worship God, something that will be alluded to later in this conversation. But later on, the Jews came in and burnt it to the ground. Over the years, they had committed treasonous, 
violent war crimes against one another, and they hated each other. The intensity of their hatred for one another just built and built and built. And because of that, they avoided each other like the plague. For the Jews, the Samaritans were unclean corruptors of all that was holy. But then there's an added complexity in this situation even beyond that. And that is the complexity that she is a woman. For Jews in the first century to even engage with a Jewish woman in public, in one-on-one like this, was a cultural faux pas. It was just something you did not do. Much less to do that with a Samaritan woman. The Jews could not have thought lower of any class of people than they did of Samaritan women. In fact, it was written in the Mishnah that all the daughters of Samaritans are menstruants from the cradle, meaning they are to be treated as perpetually and grossly unclean, and they are to be avoided at all costs. That was the Jewish sentiment towards Samaritan women. And as if all that was not bad enough, then you must add to the fact that Jesus knows everything about this woman, as he will demonstrate. And he knows that she, beyond other women of her kind, was a particularly sinful woman. She had been married five times. Five times. And the man she was with now was not her husband. Most commentators point out that this is likely the reason that she is drawing water at noon in the heat of the day. Now, culturally, women were the ones who came and drew water, but they typically did that in the evenings when things would begin to cool down and they could go in groups. But this woman comes alone in the heat of the day. Why? Well, likely because her sin was well known. It's hard to hide the fact that you've been married five times. She was an outcast, and she was likely avoiding the scorn of the other women by coming at a time when she knew that nobody would be there. She is a woman of a rejected and despised people, and she is a rejected and despised woman among her own people. This woman is the lowest of the low. The first century Jewish readers would have understood that, and she understood that. Which is why she said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She's trying to figure out what is going on here. Her sim- his simple request took her completely off guard. Now when John enters this clarification here, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's actually not the best translation Because Jews did have some dealings with Samaritans when it was necessary. As we can see right here, even the disciples were headed into a Samaritan town to buy food. But this word can also mean to use something together. It's for this reason the NET translation translated this verse, For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. That's actually a much better translation. To use something in common with a Samaritan who is unclean would be to become unclean yourself. And the problem here is there's only one bucket, and it's hers. And Jesus engages this woman by asking her for a drink. I believe this, without question, this whole scene is set up to show that Christ came for every person 
under the sun. There is no one too unclean for His grace. There is no one beyond the reach of God's grace. And it is not by coincidence that this dialogue comes on the heels of Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus in this gospel. The first two extended conversations that Jesus has in His ministry recorded in this gospel are with two people who could not possibly be more opposite. I mean, think about it. Nicodemus was a man. This is a woman. Nicodemus was named. We know who he was. This woman is left unnamed. We don't know who she was. Nicodemus was a beloved Jew. This woman was a hated Samaritan. Nicodemus was seen as a blameless keeper of the law. The Samaritan woman was a a condemned breaker of the law. Nicodemus was a moral example. The Samaritan woman was an immoral pariah. Nicodemus, being a ruler of the Jews, was powerful beyond measure. The Samaritan woman and her societal status was powerless, even beyond our 21st century mind's comprehension. Nicodemus was a teacher of the highest rank. The Samaritan woman was an uneducated person of the lowest order. Nicodemus was publicly sought after. Samaritan woman was publicly despised. But one commentator rightly notes they had one thing in common. They both needed Jesus. And Jesus engages them both. He doesn't despise one or the other. Nicodemus is not too good to need God's grace. And the Samaritan woman is not too sinful so as to be beyond the reach of God's grace. Jesus came for all. This tells us a couple of things. One, if you're someone who's been sitting on the sidelines afraid to come to Jesus because of your sin or because of your past, you look at the others around you and you think, I'm not like them. They live nice, clean, tidy lives. I don't, I'm not like them. They don't know what I've done. Well, as we will see next week, there is one who does know everything that you have done. He knows everything about you. And yet he offers you forgiveness and cleansing and salvation in him, just the same as anybody else. And as we look at this offer that he issues to this woman, know that this offer is for you, even here today. Another thing this should tell us, though, should serve as an example to us as believers. It's easy to become cynical in our world that continues in its moral decline in rapid succession. The celebrating of open lifestyles of sin that are are beyond comprehension are hard to live with in these times. But we need to remember that no matter how far gone a sinner may be, as followers of Christ, we ought to be, able, be willing to engage them with the truth, to engage them with the gospel, rather than sitting back on our moral high horses, disgusted with the people that we may meet, 
we need to remember that we have the only eternal truth that can set them free from their bondage of sin. Because that's exactly what Christ does here. He issues this moral, outcast, half-breed woman a divine and gracious offer. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Dear woman, if you only knew who I am. Jesus does not get sidetracked with addressing the division between Jews and Samaritans. Instead, he just goes straight in to beginning to reveal who he is and what he has to offer to her. The gift of God here is a reference to the eternal life that God freely bestows through him, through Christ. And here, this woman is standing before the giver of life and the only one who can bestow eternal life. And Jesus is saying, if you only knew, if you understood this, you'd be asking me for a drink, and I would give it to you, a drink of living water. Now, that's a, that's a loaded term, living water. It's rooted in the Old Testament, and it speaks of life in God. In Jeremiah 2, God said of the Israelites, He said, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They have rejected life in God, and they have tried to create cheap replacements. They have tried to find satisfaction Elsewhere, It says in that context that they were going to that which is worthless and to things that do not profit. All the while, there is only one source of water that truly satisfies the soul. And that source is sitting on the well with this woman. But she shows that she does not understand this at all. Look at verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. The woman totally misses the point. As has been the pattern throughout this gospel, Jesus is speaking on a spiritual level about ultimate truths, and people are hearing him on a literal level. We saw this in John chapter 2, speaking of his body. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews responded with, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Nicodemus, for all his learning, did not fare any better. Nicodemus, you must be born again. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time? And we'll see this again in John chapter 6 with the eating and drinking of the body and blood of Christ. All of this is meant to show that the human heart is dull and blind. And this woman follows in the same pattern. You don't have anything to draw water with. Where are you going to get this living water 
But notice, she did pick up on something that Jesus had said. She rightly understood that Jesus was offering, at least claiming to offer her water that was superior to what she could pull out of that well, which would make him superior. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. This thing's been here for 2,000 years, never ceasing to supply water to those who need it. You got something better than this? Are you greater than Jacob? Jesus quite directly answers that question in the affirmative. Look at verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now he's getting a little more clear on what he's talking about. And he contrasts the temporary nature of what she could get from Jacob's well versus the permanent nature of what she could get from him. Yet this well provides water, but there is a reason. There's a reason why you have to come back here every single day. Because it only temporarily satisfies your need. In contrast, the water that Jesus gives, the water of salvation, is a permanent and eternal reality. The human soul finds permanent satisfaction in God, in salvation through Christ. This is a fulfillment of several prophecies of the coming salvation that the prophets spoke about. Isaiah chapter 12, right after speaking of the coming Messiah in Isaiah 11, says this in verse 3. It says, With joy, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord and call upon His name. To drink from Christ is to drink from the wells of salvation. Or another place, you see the same theme is in the universal call to all to come and drink in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and you labor for what, that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you did not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. God has invited all to come to the waters. And all who do will enter into an everlasting covenant with Him. One of life. 
And that is the offer that Jesus is laying before this woman today. And not some prominent Jewish woman, but a disreputable, immoral, Samaritan woman. Showing the reality of the prophecy of Isaiah 55. You shall call a nation that did not know you. And even more, he says to her, and by extension, anyone who will drink. When you drink of this water, it will become a spring of water welling up or leaping up inside of you to eternal life. Later in chapter 7, we will see that this is actually a reference to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit for anyone who drinks of the waters of salvation. They now have within themselves the very source of the waters of life. A well that will never run dry. So did Jesus answer a question? Are you greater than Jacob? Yeah, he answered her question. The water that you can drink from Jacob satisfies your flesh for a few hours, but the water you can drink from me satisfies your soul for all of eternity. Only God can provide that. So yes, he is very much greater than Jacob. Sadly, this woman still did not get it. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. Why? So that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She missed it. She's still thinking on a natural level. Yeah, I don't want to have to come to this well. I'm here at noon for a reason. If I could not come back here, that would be fantastic. She wants what Jesus has to offer in order to satisfy the flesh, not the soul. But Christ will not give up on her, as we will see next week. But she's not there yet. And sadly, this same motivation for many, satisfaction of the flesh, to this day, is still the very reason why many come to Christ. And that's not just limited to the prosperity gospel. Most certainly it is the prosperity gospel. But even here, in a room this size, many of you may have come to Christ because you want improvement in your life, not because you see your need of God. Not because you have seen your poverty of soul and you understand Christ as the only source of life and satisfaction. But rather, you've seen your poverty of flesh and you want the benefits of God in this life. Whether that be general happiness or physical well-being or psychological well-being or a better marriage or better children or a sense of purpose or a sense of community or control of finances, or whatever the case may be. If you have come to Christ for those things, you do not understand that your greatest need is Him. Nor do you understand the significance of what He is offering you. Because what He is offering is infinitely greater than any temporal benefit you can get in this life. But here's the good news. 
For anyone who has never come to Christ before or anyone who has come under false pretenses with wrong motivations, the waters of salvation are still open to you today. And the offer that Christ laid before this woman is laid here before you today. And what did He say to her? If you would just ask. If you would just ask of me, I would give you to drink of this living water. All you have to do is ask. If you would just come to Him and ask, He is faithful to save all who just ask of Him. Just ask, and your soul will be satisfied in God for all of eternity. Before we close, I want to say a quick word to us as believers about how we think through the the promised permanence of satisfaction here. You will never be thirsty again. With the Bible's admonition and our real experiential need to continually seek for satisfaction in Christ. How do we make sense of this? How do we make sense for the pleas for satisfaction in the Psalms with the permanence of satisfaction offered here? What Christ is saying here is not that you will never have longings for more of God or for more grace or for your daily satisfaction in Him. We can think of this as belonging to the categories of justification and sanctification. When one is saved, when one is born again, they are immediately and completely justified before God. They have received the righteousness of Christ, and they stand before God in that perfect righteousness. Yet we all know that we still wrestle with the world and the flesh and the devil. Sin is still present in our lives. But there is progressive sanctification at work in our lives to make us more and more like Christ as we mature in the Lord. So at the same time, we are perfect and being sanctified. This is what Hebrews said, For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. But there is coming a day when sanctification will have its perfect work And we will be made perfectly like Him. Our lived experience will finally reflect our spiritual status. Well, in the same way, when one drinks from the waters of salvation, their soul has found permanent satisfaction in God forever. Yet we still wrestle with the flesh that wants to seek satisfaction elsewhere. And it's for that reason that we must continually fight to bring ourselves back to Christ in this world. We must bring ourselves back to His Word. We must bring ourselves back to Christ through prayer. We must discipline ourselves in what God has, in the graces God has afforded us. We must pray like Moses prayed Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all the days of our lives. We must seek Him every day, and we must put to death those desires that would draw us away from Him. And as we do, 
Our lived satisfaction grows to match our soul's satisfaction. And then one day, Christ has promised that our lived experience will perfectly match our soul's reality. Listen to Revelation 7. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Until that day, seek to find your satisfaction in Christ every day. Father, you are the God of all grace and the God of all mercy and the God of all comfort. And you have done great things on behalf of your people. Lord, help us to drink from the wells of our salvation. Help us to drink deeply from your word. Help us to drink deeply in prayer. Help us, Father, to commune with you, to know you, and to know you more all the days of our lives until that great day when things are brought into total and final and complete perfection. Father, for those who are here who may not know you, who have not trusted or drank of the waters of Christ, I pray that you would open their eyes. Father, that you would give them the strength they need to just ask. To just ask so that Christ may give them a drink. Father, would you work in your people today, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.